the week of September 10th, 2023, this is Showbiz Sandbox, episode 630, the podcast that brings you all the dirt on the news, making headlines around the entertainment world. In Los Angeles, I'm Jay Sperling Reich. And in Margaritaville, I'm Michael Giltz. Uh, I'm sorry, but Margaritaville was last week. I'm was... always in Margaritaville. And okay. guess what? Jimmy Just Buffett's... use Sunblock, okay? Just use Sunblock. Oh, I do. Thank you for that, though. Jimmy Buffett's greatest hits album, Songs You Know By Heart, is back in the top 10. Not really. It's back in the top 40. No, it's at number, I think, four or five. And it is the highest it's ever charted. It never even broke into the top 40, even though it sold, on, to date, about 8 million physical copies. So, and this is, of course, because his, you know, he's going out he on tour. Oh. <laughs> it's because he died. That's okay. right. So that's very cool to see people. I, I have to say I was surprised about the broad reaction on every talk. They, they treated him like a beloved cultural figure rather than like, oh, that guy who made a lot of money and some weird people love. <laughs> so, well, I, I always liked getting his annual email that told me which stocks and bonds I should be and, and, and businesses I should be that's investing Uncle in. That's Uncle Warren, not Cousin Jimmy. That's Uncle Warren, not oh. Cousin Jimmy. But you know I always need, get those two confused. Well, you know who needs some stock advice is maybe Scooter Braun because uh, Demi Lovato now has officially got new management. So we were hearing all sorts of confusing things. Are these people leaving? No, they're not. Yes, they are. He's transitioning away, so they can't really leave him because he's not there, but he is, and they're not going. And well, uh, one of them is now officially true. Demi Lovato is gone. So there's still something going on in Scooter Braun world, but I want to know what's going on in the rest of the world. Okay, well, uh, in uh, unfortunately, in, in certain parts of the world, there was an earthquake. Yeah, no, Morocco uh, was terrible. But I was thinking more about what are we going to talk about this week on Showbiz Sandbox. Oh, oh, okay. Well, in that case, I could tell you that much I know because this week on Showbiz Sandbox, we are still searching for that lost shaker of salt. Get it? Because it's mm-hmm. keep going. That's keep going. Jimmy. It's a Jimmy. Keep Uncle going. Jimmy, or yep. is it cousin Jimmy? Keep have going. It. Well, well, you may be asking why. It's because we want to toast the start of award season. Thanks to the Venice and Toronto Film Festivals, Venice is wrapped up. Toronto is going on right now. I'm watching some of the Toronto entries, uh, and they've gotten the ball rolling. And the winner is over at Venice. It's oh, let me just oh yeah, no, it's still not us actually. Yeah. Um, meanwhile, the strike continues. Uh, both strikes, by the way, with Warner Brothers estimating it may lose five hundred million dollars due to the writer and actor strikes. The nanny, by the way, she is staying in power over at SAG after, and even theme parks are seeing some blowback. Uh, that '70s show actor Danny Masterson, he is going to prison for a long, long time. While Jimmy Fallon is the latest super nice celebrity revealed as a not so super nice boss, this seems to kind of go with the like talk show. Yeah, the, you know all the talk show. People. I wonder if like, podcast hosts who are not really nice people like might seem innocuous and polite and friendly, Sperling, and yet are ter- you know terrors off stage. Well, yeah, I, there is a theme Sperling. to this, like all all the all the super successful, really rich hosts. Oh, that's why you're tra- nice. Yeah, and I'm super poor. That's why I'm nice too. Yeah, oh, well. and look at what it's got me. Yeah. Literally nothing. Mm. Literally, I owe people my <laughs> what it's gotten me. In any case, on Inside Baseball, we'll look at the 1923 silent film, The Spanish Dancer, starring Pola Negri. We're right on it's- the edge of the of the latest news. Yes, yes, exactly. 100 years old, and we'll bring it to you. Uh, it's the latest restoration project. 
from Milestone Film and Video. They are one of the key players in resurrecting and restoring forgotten and neglected films for more than 30 years they've been doing this. How did they turn labors of love into a viable business? That's what I want to know. Co-founder Dennis Doros joins us to share his story. Of course, during Big Deal or Big Whoop, we'll discuss some of the week's top headlines. But first, as always, we turn it over to entertainment journalist extraordinaire Michael Giltz to fill us in on last week's box office. That's right. And we're looking at box office from around the world for the entire week. We're the only people who do that. That's why you come here. We start with the info from ComScore and then the trades, the the newspapers like the LA Times and the New York Times, individual stories on markets in Korea and China and France and Japan, uh, charts online for Bollywood movies that we'd love an Indian chart that covered all movies, not just the movies from the Hindi market. So we pull info from everywhere. And the number one movie around the world is The Nun 2. This is from the Conjuring franchise, the Conjuring multiverse. Uh, These are a $2 billion franchise and counting so far. And all the movies are pretty modestly budgeted. The Nun 2 cost $22 million to make. It grossed $85 million worldwide in its opening week. Ka-ching. (laughs) <laughs> so that's that's a success right off the bat. Jawan is in India. It's a Hindu action thriller that opened to $64 million worldwide. It also debuted in the top five in North America with $6 million. That's very cool to see. It set some opening day records, so a very strong start for that action thriller. Back in North America, we have Equalizer 3, the Denzel Washington franchise. That made another $50 million, roughly. It's at $108 million and counting. Oppenheimer. Oppenheimer and Barbie are still making news. Oppenheimer grossed $38 million this week. It's at $890 million worldwide. Reverend Andy, who listens to our show, is not interested in seeing it. How could anybody not be interested in seeing it at this stage? If you're a cineast, if you like movies and you like the award season, you have to see Oppenheimer. You, you, you really do. But this movie could gross. No, let me, let me rephrase that. This movie will gross $1 billion. It's at 890 million. It's still making 38, 40 million. You know they're going to put it back out on IMAX come Oscar time in March or something. I mean, the cupboard is going to be bare, right? <laughs> they're not going to be overwhelmed with releases, so why wouldn't they put it back out? And uh, anybody that wants to see it on IMAX, and it is, I have to say, you'd think like a big, giant, huge screen to see a bunch of people talking about physics? Why would I need that? I, you know what? Give me a big screen and then blow something up. No, it's actually quite, uh, it's done very, very well. It's definitely worth seeing uh, in IMAX. Oh, absolutely. But try getting a ticket. Good luck. Well, that's the 70 millimeter uh, screenings there. You can see it just in IMAX or on a regular screen and it'll still be a really good looking True. movie. Um, so we've been in chi- uh, uh, India, North America. Now we've got movies that are playing in China. This is the Hong Kong thriller Dust to Dust about life after a bank robbery. People rob a bank decades ago, two of the masterminds disappear, and then the chickens come home to roost when their normal lives post-robbery come imploding into their face. That opened up in China to $23 million. By the way, in China, Oppenheimer's already made, like, they're thinking it's going to make about $60 million, which is uh, like the third highest grossing movie this year in China. Three hours, complex subject matter, but it's playing really well with Chinese audiences. Uh, also in China is No More Bets. That crime drama is at $535 million worldwide. And way down on the charts is Creation of the Gods Part 1. That's that animated fantasy based on the uh, uh, classic tale that many Chinese people would know, many Asian people, I think. That's at $370 million worldwide. And it's coming to North America, I think, September 22nd. 
It will be out in a uh, dubbed. I hope there's a subtitled version as well, but it is coming to North America. So I'm really looking forward to checking that out. It's China's answer to Lord of the Rings. Well, that's marketing, but it's certainly a popular movie. Going back up the charts, we have Barbie. That made another $22 million. It's one of only 11 films in history to gross $1.4 billion. If it can get to another $50 million, it will become the highest movie grosser ever directed by a woman or co-directed by a woman. It has to pass Frozen 2, and it might well do that, though it came out on you know premium video on demand, so maybe that will cut into the final leg of this movie's remarkable run. Gran Turismo is about to hit $100 million. Here in North America, my big fat Greek wedding three uh, opened up. Nia Vardalos directed this version. It's $13 million opening week. The first movie grossed $370 million worldwide. The second one grossed $90 million. It's been many years since they've passed. Maybe the movie's grown fonder in their hearts. Maybe nobody will remember it. We'll, we'll have to see. But it is geared towards older adults. So a $13 million opening could have a really strong multiple. We'll have to see where it ends up. Blue Beetle's not going to end up well. That's at about $114 million right now worldwide. It cost $100 million to make. In contrast, Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Mutant Mayhem has even better reviews. Both are pretty well-reviewed. It's at $160 million. It's still made about $10 million this week, and it's trying to claw its way to $200 million. I still haven't seen it, and I would like to. So maybe I'll help it get there by going to the drive-in this weekend. And Sound of Freedom, that's that Jim Caviezel film about a kitty sex ring. Bad. We're all opposed to that, aren't we? That's grossed $190 million worldwide. It's already opened up in like 30 territories, which I'm surprised by. I think that's why it made $7 million this week. It had an uptick, but I don't think it's quite clicking overseas the way it is in North America. So I don't think it's playing as a pure action film that people are rushing to see. Somehow the success here in North America may have been rooted in the faith-based crowd uh, more than people anticipated. And scrolling down the charts, is there anything else to say? Well, there's a bunch of movies that made $4 million. And I'd like to say at the bottom of the list is Bottoms. The raunchy teen comedy uh, that grossed $4 million this week when it went even wider here in North America. That's at a modest $8 million so far. Uh, I don't know if it's going to get to the $30 million it needs to, to announce itself a big hit, but it got good reviews and it'll probably be a valuable catalog, you know, part of somebody's library catalog. But at the bottom of the list that we're mentioning today is the Miyazaki film, The Boy and the Heron. It's about to open up in North America. It made $2 million this week. It's at $53 million. And counting, uh, so and it you opened know, up. Uh, it opened up the Toronto Film Festival. Yes, it did. Yes, and it got a lot of uh, good notices for it. Appa it's apparently, though, like I guess TIFF is now using uh, Ticketmaster as one of their ticketing uh, providers, mm -hmm. and scalped tickets. So second on the secondary market, we're selling for hundreds, if not thousands, of dollars. To yeah, the that's opening. great. There's no way that should happen. That's ridiculous. That's absurd like there's not even it's not like oh i'm gonna see the animated character walk down the red carpet like why you know what just wait it'll be on because well, there, there are idiots who just want to have the exclusivity of being there and whatnot and will pay any price and that but you shouldn't be cheating out real movie fans who go to the bother to see it you should never allow scalpers to be making money that's just you can easily stop that we know how to do it Anybody who bitches about scalpers has no excuse because it's very easily done. Make people show up with their credit card and their or their ID. They bought the ticket. It's in their name. You got to be there. You know, you just can't sell it to other people. Done. It's not a big issue. It takes two seconds to check ID or the credit card that they paid with it. 
So I have no no sympathy for them. They should stop that immediately because it really spoils the the atmosphere for everybody else. There are fans who wanted to be there that couldn't get in. Um, there are fans, however, who did not show up for a movie. That is Aristotle and Dante discover the secrets of the universe, a Latin, a queer-friendly Latin film about two boys in high school, I think, who fall in love. It's very sweet. It's very much like Heartstopper, that TV series. If you haven't watched that yet, it's adorable. This movie is based on a best-selling young adult novel, a huge bestseller. There's been a sequel. It's probably been banned in some states, even though it's certainly not sexually explicit. Wait, and in yet, states? In the U.S., it's been banned. In states? No, it hasn't been banned in, this, in the United States. It's been banned in states, like Florida. <laughs> People have, I'm sure, objected to it and asked for it to be taken off the shelves in libraries and cities and okay. states around the country. There's no book that's banned nationwide. Uh, but anyway, this opened up as well on 500 screens. A very disappointing opening, I have to say. It got friendly reviews, uh, you know, $240,000, like an average of $500 per theater location. That's, that's a shame to see because it was a sweet book and I looked forward to seeing the movie. So maybe it'll win awards or it'll win people's hearts, but it's not going to be a big winner at the box office. But it is award season, isn't it? Well, we're just now, you know, Telluride happened over Labor Day here in the U.S. So that is just uh, last week while we were recording Telluride was wrapping up and uh, Toronto was about to commence a day or two later up in uh, the, the, well, Toronto. That's where it is. Right. This Oscar season promises to be one of the strangest on record. We got to get Ann Thompson to talk about this because it's got to be a wacky year. She has probably stuff to say right now about all the different ways people are going to approach to promote their movies and talk about their movies and keep it in the public consciousness, what movies have been yanked and why. I mean, it's a weird year. Uh, But here comes Venice and then Toronto to create Oscar buzz. God knows the movies need it. And at Venice, films can only win one top award. That's sort of the unspoken rule at comp. They sometimes break or I think you can have two. Uh, But at Venice, they're like, no, 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 you can't do that. So that's why the golden line, the top prize, went to Yorgos Lanthimos's Poor Things, starring Emma Stone. Now, remember his film, The Favorite with Emma Stone, uh, not Emma Stone, won Best Actress for Olivia Coleman. So there's a lot of talk about Emma Stone's performance in this film. She's sort of a Frankenstein's monster who comes of age and into her own gendered power. And uh, it's supposed to be a terrific performance, but because it won the top prize, it wasn't didn't mean she would win it, but she wasn't even eligible, really, to win Best Actress. That meant Peter Sarsgaard won Best Actor for Memory, the story of a widower with dementia, whereas Kaylee Spaney won Best Actress for Priscilla, the biopic of Priscilla Presley by Sofia Coppola. And then I know you loved Gamora, that, that crime film by Matteo Garone. Um, that one, he won Best Director for his new movie, A Refugee Saga, called Me Captain, which also took Best Young Actor for the lead performance by Sedu Sar, who is a TikTok celeb in Senegal. He's a kid, just a kid, but he's a, you know, Fairly visible celebrity in Senegal, thanks to TikTok. And now he's given a terrific performance in this movie, which I'm really excited to see. Instead of a, oh, you terrible people are treating them this way, it's more of a saga, an exciting journey to see this person make it to where they're hoping to get. Because people have risked their lives to get to a new world and a new start. So I don't know about you, but these movies sound really promising. Yeah, I mean, certainly Poor Things is... uh, Poor Things? Yeah. (laughs) Uh, <laughs> and Agnieszka Holland has a great documentary uh, or film Border. about yeah, yeah and I've seen clips of it it looks amazing well it's in black and white it mm-hmm. looks amazing very timely it's about uh, border crossings uh, and the migrant crisis that is not only uh, affecting 
us here in the United States, but it seems to be all over the world. Yeah. There's different huh. different things going on. Now, Sperling, you're an actor, of course, an established stage and screen actor. I know you That's can't right. talk about your projects, but can you talk about other people's projects? Could you go somewhere and talk about Meryl Streep's new movie? I'm going to go and, t- and talk about um, Meryl Streep's new movie, uh, which I don't even know what is Meryl Streep's Well, she's in Mur- Only Murders in the Building, the new TV okay. series. There you go. I'm just wondering about the rules on that, because, of course, the strikes are ongoing with the WGA and SAG-AFTRA. And we know that the nanny, Fran Drescher, was reelected easily. Her her team swept in at least New York and the national level. Uh, I assume they did very well in the uh, You know, they level. say there's 160,000 voters or, or, or members, right? Mm-hmm. 160,000 SAG members. And then you look at, like, the... The polling results coming in here, it's 23,000 for Fran Drescher. And her, her do we, opponent do you have the has 2,000. Yeah, they, they emailed them to us. And it was like 23,000 votes for her. And I'm like, out of 160,000 people, you have 23,000 amid, amidst a strike, that's bizarre. Though if everybody's assuming she was going to easily win re-election, that would tell you something. They're fine and happy with who is in charge right now. If they weren't, more people would turn out, obviously, to try and kick them out. So that is strange and puzzling to me. We'll have to keep wondering how hard is it to vote? Why is this a why do so few people vote when they're literally out of work pounding the pavement to strike? You would think just to show support, they would want to rally people, say, hey, everybody, let's vote. You know, why aren't you voting? <laughs> That's a good question. Uh, but I know investors had a questions for Warner Brothers, didn't they? Warner Brothers said they may take a five hundred million dollar hit thanks to the two strikes, the ongoing strikes. Well, actually, they they kind of couched it by saying, really, really good news, guys. Great news. Our free cash flow, and free cash flow is kind of seen as a sign that, hey, your company is healthy. And damn it. I I didn't put that in the notes. Okay, we're going to talk about free cash flow. Yeah, well, okay. uh, Sure, we'll we'll talk about free cash flow. But it's basically saying, hey, you're so good that you're making more money than you're losing. Uh, And so they kind of said, our free cash flow is going to go up more than we predicted. So our forecast is going up for free cash flow. Oh, by the way, we're going to lose about $500 million because of these two strikes. <laughs> and what did the unions say? What did they say? By the way, they about, said well, your losses for one studio alone, thanks to the strike, would cover all the increased income they're asking for over the entire three years of the contract for everybody. Right. So why exactly are you refusing to negotiate? You're paying, all the studios combined are paying far more money in losses than they would if they just said, fine, we'll make this deal. It's because they want power and control and they don't want to change the way they do business and they'd rather lose more money than deal with that. Also, remember when they said, well, we'll peg your executive pay to the stock. That will force you to do a good job and then we don't have, nobody can bitch about how much money you're making. Guess what changed uh, with the... Uh, uh, Is it Zaslav or Disney? Zaslav. Zaslav's new contract, by the way, is not about stock prices mostly. It's mostly about free cash flow, meaning when he takes shows off of a off of the library and takes all these hits and all these tax write-offs, not only does it give them a short-term buffer, it actually pays him more money. It makes his his value and the compensation he's going to receive higher. So he has an incentive now to distort things and do things to increase free cash flow rather than just doing what's best for the company long term. So they had the distortions of stock prices, and now they have the distortions of worrying about free cash flow rather than saying, are you doing a good job running the company? Is it positioned well for the future? Are we investing in the future? Is things going right? Are you smart? Are we thinking long term? It's all about 
tricking the short-term metrics so you can make as much money before you run out the door. So when you hear about free cash flow, that's a big reason because he's benefiting personally from doing that. And by the way, the number of times, it almost seems like a foregone conclusion now, the way people are writing these analysts are writing like, well, you know, when Warner Brothers and Comcast merge, they just kind of like, yeah. it's, it's, a, it's a foregone, right? I mean, that's going to happen, right? I mean, they just, it's not today, it's not tomorrow, but you know, in a year. Like, it's just, I'm like, what are you talking about? Like, <laughs> how, w- if I was the government, I'd be all over that. I'd say absolutely not. I mean, part of the reason we're here dealing with Disney versus charter and, and these strikes is because you let all of these companies get too powerful. And yes, I don't think they're seeing the forest for the trees here because they're fighting and fighting and fighting and not realizing like, hey guys, you know what? If you gave everybody everything they, want. they wanted, everything, writers and actors, yes, you know what? The math says each studio would probably you know, be, be in it. In for better the, shape the, than if you let the strike drag it, on. Well, Plus you're just... 50- $50 million a year, okay? And that $500 million hit does not take into account how they're screwing up the fall season, the long-term box office, the life expectancy of exhibitors, and what's going to happen a year or two from now. Yeah, it's, it's almost like you kind of go, what are you thinking? Well, they don't like, care how- about the long-term, do they? They're, they're taught not to because that's not how they make their money, even if the company does. Um, anyway, Warner Brothers is making more uh, decisions to help uh, ease the burden. They are pausing their deals with major writer and creators, people like Chuck Lorre, J.J. Abrams, shout out to Rachel, uh, Greg Berlanti, Mindy Kaling, John Wells, etc. So they're suspending these well, deals. Well, John Wells, they gave up uh, way back in June. They, they suspended he's listed. He was Well, yes, but they're, they're, he's still part of the list. Um, yeah. So they are suspending deals with some of the biggest and most important writers. Amazon started doing the same thing. They're suspended some big deals. They're pausing them, including Donald Glover. The Hollywood Reporter, however, says that most people don't expect a force majeure bloodbath like last time. So do you know, I'm sorry to throw this out without knowing in advance whether you know the answer. Why are they pausing it rather than killing them? What's the advantage financially to pausing them? And uh, why is there not a force majeure bloodbath the way we predicted earlier? Okay, well, you're talking about, first of all, there was a force majeure bloodbath. Okay, so it's just that it when was, was that that was way back. It, this is now only talking about writers. Okay, so uh-huh. let's leave the actors to the side uh, because writers are the ones that have these overall deals that, where they say, okay, we want you. We want a first look with you. We're going to give you money. We're going to give you this overall deal and uh, you're going to give us everything that you can. Uh, and that's what the studios get. However, there are hundreds of if not thousands of these deals out there with writers. Mm-hmm. Most of them not that big. Right. And most of them are not named J.J. Abrams or Greg Berlanti or Mindy Kaling or John But that's Wells. where you save the big money. When you, right. when, you, when you kill those big deals, it doesn't matter if they have a deal with me, they're saving 50 bucks. Where you make the money is by doing force majeure to get rid of that big, huge uh, deal that you regret, that you say, damn, why did I make that deal with Chuck Well, Lurie? first of all, there aren't too many of those anymore because they all came up over the past year. Like, like uh, what's his name over at Netflix? Uh, Mr. American Crime Ryan, Story. Ryan Murphy and-, and Thank uh, you. And I don't know Shonda why Rimes. I can't remember name. Yeah, I can't. Yeah, those, those deals were up and kind of being renegotiated anyway. Well, they're Netflix, Uh, so so it's different. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the reason that they're pausing some of these deals is these are people, Chuck Lorre, J.J. Abrams, that these companies, whether it's a network or a studio, they want to remain in business with them. They don't want them to go away. But the whole point in years past was force majeure against big names that they thought that, oh, we've got this big crappy deal and we want to get rid of it. 
Yeah, so, none of the deals are crappy. It's just that they can't work right now. And right. the reason they're pausing them now, mm-hmm. and the reason they're pausing them, I mean, think about it. We're like 130 some odd days into this strike now. And mm-hmm. now they're going, oh, you know what we should do? We should totally, you're not working <laughs> right now. We should totally pause that. Well, they were still but, working presumably until the actors went on strike. Right. Well, the reason they're doing if, it now is mm-hmm. the studios are looking to to basically squeeze these big names so that these big names go to the guild and say, come on, take some of these deals. Some of these deals aren't so bad. Uh, and kind of force Other than Ryan Murphy, do we know anyone that's doing that? I don't think so. No. And, no. and by the way, everybody says that the, the following people continue to work. Ryan Murphy and Shonda Rhimes, <laughs> that they're, they're kind of working and have their offices working and they're kind You're of saying paying. they're breaking the strike? They're, they're, they're crossing the line by doing well, work they shouldn't be? Suppo- they're, they're basically supposed to be doing nothing. And no, that when- they're allowed to do work that they, that's not involved in as a writer. They have many other t- hats that they wear. Are you saying people are claiming that they are actually violating the strike? Not violating it per se, but what there's no per they're not, se. They're, not they're any, violating it or they're not. Well, here's the thing. Unlike say, well, the automotive workers, they're going to go on strike this this week. I, we know it's different, but th- that's what's complicated. And some people say, I can't feel like I can't do any part of my job as a writer creator without violating the strike, and so I won't right. do it. Drew Barrymore, for example, saying, I'm going to go back to my talk show because I want to get people to work who can work, and I support the strike, and I didn't go to this award show and host it, and I'm not going to break the the picket line, but I'm doing my show anyway without writers. And the writer's like, well, we're going to strike, you know, we're going to picket you. Um, so everybody has their own thing. But if these people are working and are violating the strike rules, they're either doing that or they're not. Either they're well, violating the rules and they're breaking, they're crossing the picket line and some, they're scabs. Some of these writers do a lot of the writing on their own. They do it themselves. So they yes. can sit in their room and write. And meanwhile, the, when the strike ends, they can go, oh, look, I just happen to have 10, 10 Well, 10 everybody can done. do that. Right. Uh, that's, that's, that's not against the rules. That's just you that can't said, put it to work. Mm-hmm. That said, uh, a lot of the, you know, the staff writers, all of their deals got axed through mm-hmm. force majeure. They're trying but, to split the writers now with, with the, by squeezing them and getting all of their staff. Like all of a sudden, all these assistants are going to start getting laid off. Well, they're already at, paused at, anyway, I'm sure. I mean, there's no No, no, no. Now anymore. they will be. Yeah, that's, yeah. that's what these deals are. Now, what's really happening, Michael, as we have been saying from the beginning, how this ends is one of these sides will split. One of these sides will begin to go, you know what? We've got to get back to work. And whether it's the union and labor and one half says, you know what, guys, we've got to get back to work. Just take the deal. Or if it's the management, uh, management in, in this case, studios, I have always said you have, you have streamers on, and you have studio, your legacy studios and their needs and their wants are not aligned. And at some point, one of these studios, possibly Paramount or Sony, they're going to say, guys, we're going to go ridiculous. cut a deal ourselves. This is ridiculous. We can cut a deal. We know what we want. Go cut your own deal. And that is exactly what's starting to happen. Well, the WGA says it's happening. They say, hey, everybody's coming to us privately and saying, well, we're, we're happy with most of this. Why are you guys working with the streamers? Why don't you just dump them? Or why don't you just come to us individually? We're ready to make a deal. And the right, studios well, are like, there is no division. How dare you suggest there's a division? <laughs> well, that's the AMPTP thing, right? Like the AMPTP, yeah. which is all these studios, the big eight, so to speak. Uh, it basically, you have to negotiate to the, you know, most, uh, I don't know what you would call it, like the most stubborn member. You have to adhere to what they want. And that's what's going on. So Netflix doesn't They all have veto g- power? There's no ability to make a deal unless all eight agree completely? 
Pretty much, yeah. That's the problem. And that's, by the way, the reason that the Association of Motion Picture television producers not the alliance of motion picture that's the reason that the amptp broke up the first time yeah well there's there's no uh, there's no division yet they say but they're trying to put pressure on the writers meanwhile the writers are putting pressure or maybe even actors on studios like disney and universal by going to theme parks they're not picketing them but they are protesting and handing out flyers at universal horror nights to say hey look you know, we generate this IP, writers and actors. Uh, they're profitable and not shut down, and they're a hugely important uh, part of the studio ecosystem for those who own them. And they're saying, look, those are vulnerable too. We want to make people think twice before they go to your theme parks right now. Uh, they've done it at Universal, and they may do Disneyland next. Um, but moving on to social justice, as we mentioned at the top of the show, Danny Masterson, the disgraced actor from that 70s show, was sentenced to 30 years in prison for raping two women. To show how far we've come, can I share the embarrassing thought that my first reaction was, wow, that seems like a long time. You know, I mean, yeah. you destroyed two people's lives. You presumably have raped other people. There's no reason to think you've just raped, you know, sexually assaulted or raped two people, um, though I have no evidence of that. But that is life destroying. If they did it to your child, you would just hunt them down in vengeance. It's a horror story. It's a nightmare. And yet... I'm, we're so conditioned to think, well, you know, it's like, I thought, wow, that seems like a real long time. Well, yes, it is. And thank goodness for that. Then there was a little bit of a kerfuffle in the media. Suddenly we were getting notices about all the people who know Danny Masterson writing letters to the judge, asking the judge to show some clemency. He's got a daughter, you know, uh, and that he's a really nice guy and all that. Ashton Kutcher, Mila Kunis did it. And I was like, wow, that's an interesting choice. I mean, it's hard. If somebody you've known for decades says, could you write me a, a, a character reference? On the other hand, they've just been, you know, they're going to be found perhaps guilty of rape. And there's no. Well, they were found guilty of rape. No, this no, no. But sentence. when the letters were written, it was before I think the verdict oh, okay. came through. So, but I'm not sure about that. Anyway, I thought, oh, that's, that's a tough one. Uh, but in fact, Ashton Kutcher and Mila Kunis took to social media to apologize and say, we do not want to blame the victims. We did this. But if any implication that the verdict was not just or that the victims were, oh, we apologize and that was wrong and we shouldn't have done that. So. Uh, I've never been put in that situation, but that was awkward, and their people should have helped them better on that. And then there's Jimmy well, Fallon. Mm-hmm. You know, uh, yeah, there's Jimmy Fallon. You know, what's interesting to me about the Danny Masterson uh, case mm-hmm. is that this case was tried and led to uh, a mistrial. Well, that and, happens all the time, yeah. And, and there's a whole Scientology thing going on with this. There, it gets complicated there, but seven of the 12 jurors said, look, we were voting to acquit. Uh, it went from that to a conviction of a 30-year-to-life sentence. I mean, that's Well, that's a why it's called swing. a mistrial. Yeah. You get a chance to do, make a better case. If you have a bad lawyer, you can be found guilty. You have a good lawyer, you can be found innocent. It's, this is not a question of putting doubt onto whether he raped those two women, if that's what you're trying to say. No, 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 no. Well, no, no, no. Trials, just... trials, trials get... A, people vote for acquit because of the evidence presented to them. If those same jurors had been on the second trial, they might have well voted to convict. So that doesn't mean anything. It just True. means... A poor case was made, or evidence wasn't allowed the first time that was allowed the second time, or new evidence came to light. Yeah, we don't or, know any of that yet. Yeah, so, I mean, that's, you have to sit in the trial to, to judge that. But anyway, Jimmy Fallon, he joins Ellen DeGeneres as a talk show host with a super nice vibe, with apparently a toxic work environment that many workers talked about to Rolling Stone. I was like, really? You know, people are like, there's good Jimmy Day and bad Jimmy Day, and I'm like, 
I personally would never have gone to work for like the who are those awful producers, Joel Silver and uh, who Joel Silver and and Scott Rudin. Scott Rudin, uh, yeah, you you knew they were awful. I'm like, why would anybody go to work for them? I don't care if it's going to advance your career; it's a nightmare. I would just wouldn't do it. I wouldn't accept that. Uh, but you know, people's dreams, whatever. But you think, all right, yeah, he's a dick. Okay, like this is not life changing. However, once you actually look at the story, the insiders say erratic behavior from him is far worse than the typically awful behavior around late night television. Uh, But this is amazing. Rolling Stone spoke to more than 80, 80 current and former staffers, and they say not a single one would go on the record to say positive things about working on the show. Nine showrunners in nine years. Wow. None of the showrunners would comment or even give a statement of support for Jimmy Fallon. That is, that lets you know, wow. Okay. My initial like, really? He's a jerk. Okay. I don't care to like, wow, that's really bad. (laughs) That many people and nobody. The only one who is defending Fallon is Jerry Seinfeld, who insists one anecdote that some workers shared is totally ridiculous and blown out of proportion. He says it was meaningless. And yet he also says, but we laughed about it for years. It's like, oh. All Don't right. you think he said it more like, uh, it's nothing, it's yeah, nothing, yeah. it's when, absurd. When you want a, a, a sense of perspective on stand-up comics and this world, the people to turn to are not the other stand-up comics in their world. Like, uh, There's a clip of Jon Stewart from back in the day dismissing somebody's question about Louis C.K., I believe, in the new documentary about him. You're like, these people are not the best judges of their friends and acquaintances. So there you go. And I will say one thing, uh, alcoholism comes up a little bit about Jimmy Fallon. I don't think anybody says that's the sole explanation for what's going on. Uh, But I do recall that uh, when this came up before, Jimmy Fallon said, look, how could I do this work if I was drinking? Like, that's ridiculous. Like, I'm not not an alcoholic. I couldn't do this job day in, day out if I was drinking. To which I go, wow, yeah, yes, you could. (laughs) If that's your idea, like, I'm not an alcoholic because I get the job done. No, there are functioning alcoholics all over the world. You might even do a good job. You could do a crappy job or a good job. But no, people get the job done even when they're alcoholics. So that, you know, getting to your job and doing a show every night does not mean you're not an alcoholic. So that was a telling comment. But it's ugly. It's sad. If you're a big Jimmy Fallon fan, I'm I'm not one way or the other. I don't wish him ill, but it's it's unpleasant to hear that late night television apparently a dream i'd love to have been a talk show host or even a sidekick but it sounds like an awful job which you know it is a very it's a grueling job especially for those showrunners and producers because it is nonstop four or five days a week week after week booking the shows writing the jokes it's a grind and it's hard to put one show on per week could you imagine doing it four nights a week it's not easy thank god we only do it one night a week yeah, well, by the way, it just goes to show you that like now that they're not actually working on it day to day, now they feel a little uh, a little freer to kind of talk uh, because they're all out on strike and, <laughs> and they, you know. This is the time it, to vent. Yeah, and so what are you, they have all the time on their hands to think and they're thinking, you know what, that is a really hard job. Yes, it well, is. Well, it, it might be a hard job, but it shouldn't be a toxic job. Well, yes, true. You know, and that's a big deal. You really want to make sure that the job you choose is one you can... It, the idea of like, oh, you should love your job. It's like, no, sometimes you just have to take a job. It's not something you love necessarily, but it shouldn't be hateful. Well, yeah, I remember, you know, getting a, a uh, job offer from Scott Rudin and taking the weekend to think about it. And it was, 
obviously a big deal, no pun intended, since yeah. I know where we're headed here. Uh, but I, I chose after the weekend, I thought, you know what? I know how this no ends. No way. No I way. I know how it ends. And it's yeah. it, it, the and same way it ends that's why you everybody. have the career you have. That's right. <laughs> Should have taken the job. Uh, but it is Let time for big... Up. Exactly. It's time for Big Deal or Big Whoop, our weekly segment where we discuss the top headlines in entertainment and we tell you whether they're really important or just overhyped nonsense. Our first story, the acclaimed HBO series Real Sports with Brian Gumbel is ending after 29 years. The Emmy and Peabody winning series is basically the 60 minutes of sports. As our in-house culture critic, Aaron Rich, put it, each episode they deliver multiple stories that shine a light on some aspect of sports as it relates to the wider world. Gumbel began as a sports broadcaster, then hosted the Today Show for NBC every morning for 15 years, starting in 1982. And that's how I remember him. And just as that was coming to a close, he launched Real Sports for HBO in 1995, which, by the way, seems like just like maybe five <laughs> years ago. Okay. He's been doing it for 29 years. Real Sports did substantial stories such as documenting the abusive treatment of children forced to be camel jockeys in the United Arab Emirates and pointed remarks about the NFL and NBA that kind of raised a few hackles. Big deal or big whoop. It's a big deal uh, because why are they shutting it down? I thought the show would be bigger than Brian Gumbel. Uh, Same here. I, they've got a great team. It's, as Aaron Rich says, it's the 60 Minutes of Sports. Mary Carrillo is there. She'd be a great host to keep the show going. I don't know why. I'm, I guess it's just faded in importance. They don't see subscribers really, you there's, know. There's always some reason, you know, yeah. and it might be that, you know what, he owns it and he doesn't want, you know, he owns the rights to Does that. It? I don't know, but there's oh. always some reason in the background that yeah, that that's a, that's this. a that's a shame. Okay, now we know that music streaming includes some fraud. Okay, we've all you know read the stories, and that's how of, we have fifty thousand uh, listeners. That's right, <laughs> fifty more like fifty million um, people can quote unquote buy some streaming activity to bump up an artist's profile, just like they used to buy radio plays for a new single. We also know some groups create acts and then pump up their streaming to collect a chunk of the royalties that go to all the acts on a streaming service. Okay, so like let's say you have a hundred million dollars and it's being divided up this week. In royalties. Fake acts. Yeah. In royalties, yeah. Fake acts that really have no fans at all. They might get 1% of that. Their streams don't increase the money coming in. They just kind of grab a piece of the pie they don't deserve from other acts that really are being listened to. We know that at least 3% of all streams are fraudulent. Okay, that's, that's what the reporting shows. But that's just the fraud companies can spot. The actual amount may be 5% or more of all streams. And now, here's a new wrinkle. In Sweden, some fake streams are used to launder money, okay? <laughs> and what we mean, mean by that is criminals, okay? They take the money they want to launder, they buy cryptocurrency with it, and then they use that cryptocurrency to buy streams of their fake artists, which they manage, and then legitimately claim the money as royalties for the acts that they back, okay? So it's kind of a, a great unbelievable business model that I cannot believe I did not see coming. I should have. I'm in the wrong business. Uh, by the way, it's not all fake. Some of those acts are gangster rappers who actually attract new people to join their gang. So that's on the positive <laughs> side. Uh, big deal or big whoop? Uh, it's, a, it's fascinating. It's, I guess it's a big deal. I don't know how much of a problem it is. But if you go into Amazon and you sometimes see an obscure book that has a used copy for like $600, that's money laundering too. That's what's going on there. It's crazy. But I immediately thought of a movie deal, right? We can't do it right now, but can't you just see like the son of the gangster 
Uh, you know, he's like, they need an act to put on so they can get fake money. So his son, who, I want to rap, I want to rap. They let him rap and he sucks, but suddenly he's got streams and he thinks he's good. Or he actually becomes a good act and, you know, starts to become famous. Like, well, wait, what do we do? Do we have a fake act or do we actually promote him as like real promote? You know, I just think of all exciting possibilities. But we can't pitch it. No? You know, what else do you have? I lost the elevator pitch. (laughs) What else do you got? All right, keep going. uh, It's always like the the agent is always chiding their writers. Remember, you got to have something else in your back pocket. It's about two guys doing a podcast, and then the one guy kills the co-host because... (laughs) This one. And then he does a true crime podcast about the death of his co-host, even though he's the killer. (gasps) Ooh, that's good. Actually. That is good. That is good. <laughs> you do I a see pod, Matt Damon. Podcast I see where Matt you're, Damon. The, you're the guilty party. That's kind of awesome. Uh, copyright. Uh, I put it up. I've already, you know, I've already trademarked it, people. Don't even try. We have the proof. We have the proof. <laughs> uh, no, no. Okay. So let's talk about YouTube for a second, because no studio that owns the rights to a TV show like Bewitched is losing sleep over a VHS copy airing on YouTube complete with commercials from way back in the day. That's the, the role filled by, and this is a true place, I guess, Museum of Classic Chicago Television. Okay, They digitize old VHS copies of shows and stuff that aired like in Chicago 40, 50, and 60 years ago, which apparently is now like, I don't Ancient know, 1995. Yeah. Um, <laughs> sitcoms like Bewitched, we're talking about, old news broadcasts. And you know, whenever possible, they do it with you know, all the commercials, voiceovers, and the like. The visual and audio quality is often kind of what you'd expect from an old VHS recording, you know, crappy. It also posts stuff like the 16 millimeter prints local stations would receive to broadcast episodes, along with historical context for when the episode aired. It's all good fun, really. And well, it's, it's all sparking a takedown notice from Sony Pictures, or rather from MarkScan, an India-based company working for Sony, that generates takedown notices. The museum believes it has a fair use right to post the videos and that no one could imagine it harms Sony's library of old bewitched episodes whose entire eight-season run can be found on Apple TV+, and presumably some cable or fast channel. Still, by the time you read this, the nonprofit Museum of Classic Chicago Television may be gone for good. Big deal or big whoop? Uh, It's complicated. This is something we've covered before, where people get takedown notices wrongly from this anonymous third-party company. There's no one to appeal it to. So you have to comply. We got a takedown notice for posting a film trailer that was given, you know, posted to the world by the studio. Studios have received takedown notices for their own material. So it's crazy. On the other hand, companies need to object in a certain way or they may lose certain rights. There has to be a way to allow stuff like this that does no harm to continue. Uh, But I don't know what way that would be. Music Business Worldwide has a useful story about how music streamers formulate who gets how much money for their songs. The French streaming service Deezer is available in 180 countries and hit almost $500 million in revenue in 2022. It just signed a deal with Universal Music Group to switch to an artist-centric royalty scheme. It's what everybody is talking about right now. It's an attempt to make sure the artists that fans actually seek out and play get the most money from the royalty pool. And now how does this work? Okay, and I would kind of say, hey, Spotify, you should pay attention to this because this would (laughs) stop that whole fraud thing. Uh, It it gives priority to professional artists. That is anyone who generates at least 1,000 streams per month from at least 500 unique listeners. It also gives more weight to artists that fans seek out that they search for. So when you, you know, type an artist, you know, 
Snoop Teddy Dogg. Thompson. Teddy yeah. Thompson, yeah. Jimmy Buffett into Spotify. They're like, oh, so you're here to act. Oh, okay, yeah, you're searching for them. Uh, they, they, they give more weight to that rather than streamers offered up by an algorithm. Deezer is greatly reducing the non-artist audio generated by AI and others for generic instrumentals and categories like music for exercising and the like. Oh, there goes my, there goes my salary. Uh, it begins in October in France. Is this a big deal or a big whoop? Well, it'll be a big deal if it works and we see it, it benefits the artists and we see other people adopt it. And like you say, it will also help cut down on fraud and cut down on the massive amounts of just crappy little 30 second and two minute clips generated by AI that serve no purpose for anyone and just clog up the system. Our next story, this is like breaking news, Michael. Uh, mm -hmm. Okay. Charter and Disney. Remember last week when we were like, this thing is never going to be solved. This is going to the mat. This They're is making love, not war. Yes, they have reached a significant new deal, according to them, uh, for cable customers at least. Uh, no, you can't cherry pick your channels or refuse to pay for MSNBC or ESPN or Fox News. I'm going to stop there because that's pretty much all I wanted. So, <laughs> uh, But it is a major change that every other cable company will surely ask for as well. First, subscribers already paying for ESPN, you know, if you bought the sports tier. And actually, ESPN, this is part of the problem. It's not on a sports tier. It's on basic cable, and that's part of the problem. No, I know, but but the, if you bought the sports-centered tier, then you get ESPN streaming, and we'll get the ESPN streamer when it launches. And so if you just have basic cable, you don't get it. Right. You have to have bought the sports tier of, their, of whatever they offer. It's called Spectrum Plus or Spectrum whatever. Yeah. Okay. But that's it. Well, you, Disney, you got a basic uh, thing. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. The other basic thing is Disney via their cable bundle will now get free access to an ad supported Disney Plus. Okay. So I'm a spectrum. So now I get ads at Disney Plus. And when it launches, I will uh, get an ad supported ESPN Plus. Well, so did you have Disney in your, in your local cable bundle? Do you have Spectrum? And if so, were you, were you subscribing to Disney Plus and will we be able to save that eight, nine dollars a month? I do have Disney Plus. I do have Spectrum. And if I wanted to watch movies with uh, As. ads in them, yes, okay. I could save that money. All right. But yeah, so, okay. Well, there you go. That's interesting. Keep going. Well, Charter is, however, cutting back on the number of channels that it will be offering, at least the number of Disney channels. And it won't be offering Freeform, Disney Junior, Nat Geo, Wild, FXX, and various other channels. It's nine channels in total that will be dropped. In return, Charter will advertise Disney streaming services to broadband customers who aren't getting a cable package. So, Like I me. Yes. Yeah. So... Yeah, okay. Yeah, we get uh, Spectrum, big, we get cable, we get Wi-Fi from Spectrum, but not television, not cable. So we would be the people that say, hey, you can get Spectrum cable, and hey, you could just get Disney+. Plus." So there you go. Well, is this a big deal or a big whoop? It's a very big deal. It's not everything we wanted to see. Does it change things? I think fairly significantly. Number one, uh, we've got all these drop channels. What's going to happen? Will those drop channels ultimately disappear? We've had a sort of, you know, you want ESPN, you got to carry 17 other ESPN variations. You want Disney, you got to carry Disney Junior, Disney XD, Disney Go, Go, Go Boy, you know, all I those. Get, I, I just want to say, except for this week when the Texas Longhorns beat the Alabama. <laughs> so <laughs> this Ouch. was probably all the news you were hearing. Oh, then. yeah, people were in mourning. Yeah, uh, I didn't even know I had this channel until this 
this dispute broke out. I was like, why am I paying for the Texas Longhorn Sports Network? Well, there's been a lot of bloat over the years in cable, and we've got a lot of channels that are very minimally watched. They serve a purpose, or they wouldn't have put them up in the first place. They're not doing it just to lose money. But there's going to be a big culling of all these channels. FX. We have said FX, this for FX, years, FX, by FX, the way. Yeah. yeah. So there's going to be a big culling. Slim, slimmed down packages that maybe won't cost as much and all the fat that's been there for a while. Nat Geo Wild, surely there's enough just for National Geographic Channel. You don't need four variations. National Geographic Oceans, National Geographic, you know, cows, you know, I'm making that up, but you get the idea. There's been a lot of bloat. Those channels, nobody else is going to carry them either. These, these deals will carry over to all the other cable companies. And that means a lot of those channels are going to disappear Probably that nobody will be crying over that. Now, um, I think also, if you are a subscriber to Spectrum and you are already getting, uh, say, Disney or you have the sports tier and you're getting ESPN, uh, that means you would get an a- uh, access to an ad-supported Disney Plus or an ad-supported ESPN Plus when that launches. Will Disney offer you a cut rate if you want to upgrade to the um, no-ad tier? I would think so. Right, they were getting nine dollars from you or ten dollars, right, for Disney Plus without ads. Maybe they'd say, okay, if you're a Spectrum subscriber already, for an extra three bucks, you can upgrade from the ad-supported one to the non-ad-supported one. That would be a smart thing for them to do, rather than unless they they also make more money, I guess, when you're on the ad uh, ad level. So maybe they won't, but that is a possibility. I, I'd be interested to know that. I mean, look, they might be make. Yeah, you just kind of hit the nail on the head. They, you know, the. They like the ad tier. They like the ad tier. They're making more money off people on the ad. Ads make money, duh. Yeah, I I think that, uh, again, this the deal here is we're going to get less channels that we have to pay for, which was like kind of a hack that all of these uh, media companies had figured out that like, oh, we have a bunch of shows about birds. Let's put uh, together an Animal Planet's birds show or or channel that we could charge uh, Comcast and Spectrum. Only 100,000 people watch it, but they're bird lovers and God bless them. But there really isn't enough content to justify all those extra channels in that way. And you've got a 500 channel cable package when you're not happy because it's costing you $200 a month. So slim down the package, then you've got less and put those bird shows on your streamer. Well, and so here's the uh, the deal with ESPN. Right now, uh, Disney... And this is the reason this fight was picked at this moment. First of all, it's an existential problem for Charter. They're basically saying, you are our competitor. You're going out there and selling. Right. People, people, are, your people are paying. You know, people, when people pay for HBO via cable, they then get access to HBO Max for free. So when you're paying for Disney or uh, maybe the sports tier to get all the sports you can, it's annoying to have to pay extra money just to get access to the streaming version, especially when it's your money that's funding all the stuff that's going to be exclusively on the streaming service. So I, I think it's a fair, a fair trade there. If you want people to keep subscribing to cable for a while longer, you can't cut them off from the, the big, juicy, new Disney Plus and ESPN Plus. Well, so you have this existential crisis going on with, with uh, the MVPDs, the, the, the cable companies, basically. Mm-hmm. You also have uh, Disney saying, Hey, we're going to break ESPN out and make it its own separate line item on the earnings report so that you'll know exactly how much money ESPN is making. And it's a lot, you'll see. Uh, and you'll be really happy with that. And by the way, it also makes it a lot easier to, I don't know, off the top of my head, 
sell ESPN because it's already broken out and you can, you know, value it at that, at that level. Uh, and so the last thing in the world Iger needs is for less money to be coming in for ESPN, <laughs> right? At a time where he's about to break it out. Yeah. Meanwhile, they were busy like saying, oh guys, you should, you should subscribe to Hulu plus live TV Come yeah. on, you should do that right at a time. When Iger has to go and cut a deal with Comcast to say, oh, you know, look, it's Hulu's not that valuable. Meanwhile, he's like pushing people over to it. It's like none of this was making any strategic what sense to me. What the heck is me. Hulu worth? NBC's channel shows are disappearing from it. The Disney ABC channels shows would dis content would disappear once their most recent contract is up. So why is it worth so much if you're just chart, you know, you're just whomever sitting there with. Hulu, and you don't have the Disney, you don't have the Fox, you don't have the NBC shows. You know what? What ex actually do they own that would be so valuable? I don't, I don't get know. it. I don't get well, it. That's why, why an arbit. That's why it's going to arbitration. They're going to have. Yeah, a, but they're going to value it at least at twenty-eight billion dollars. Right, which means that they would have to pay about nine billion dollars to buy out Comcast. And and believe me, Brian Robert, they're they're actually Comcast is all they're jumping at the bit to be there to say, you know, hey. <laughs> Here's here you go. Here's here's your Hulu that you have to pay for. We'll take the ten billion, please. Mm -hmm. And of course, Iger's like, oh, it's not worth that much, is it? It can't possibly be. But we'll see. I, I do think. Look, obviously, uh, Chris Winfrey, his the CEO of Charter, he has a point. The model is broken. The model is changing. You have David Zaslav going out there and for the first time ever saying, we're going to take what's what's on CNN, and we're going to stream it on Max direct. Like, it's just going to be right. exactly what's on CNN. Well, for that, years, well, that's not historically, what doing. you can't do that. They're not doing that. That's what they're moving towards. Well, they didn't. They said no. They, what they described was that they would be showing breaking news, especially during the day, but they would not be rebroadcasting their primetime shows as they happened to air it on CNN. Uh, that's my understanding. They may want to eventually go to that, but the plan well, now is not to live stream the exact thing that's airing on CNN on HBO Max. That's not what they said they are doing. They said, you'll see the breaking news during the day, the live breaking news stuff, and there's a live news feed that's separate from the primetime shows and that block of shows. Those will not be, they will be available like the next day, like they have been before. Uh, that's my understanding. Well, yeah, I can say that based on everything I've been reading, because it was kind of a bombshell because as I was going to say, historically, they can't do that. It's contractually not allowed from, the, from their deals with the cable companies uh, because, of course, the cable companies don't want, you, to, you know, that would, it's basically like releasing something day and date. You know, it's like, yeah, you can get it on the cable package or you can just subscribe to, to Max and you can get it there. Well, obviously, you're now my competitor the second you do that. So that's why normally that was never done. And, you know, all of the analysis over the past week has been, wait a second, does he have some loophole that he's figured out here? Or is he just like, you know what? The lawsuits are cheaper than watching CNN wither away on the vine. And by the way, to clarify, the um, sports-centric tier that they're talking about, Select Plus TV, this is a, an, a, a level, a tier that Spectrum will be offering in the coming months. So it's not something you subscribe to right now because it doesn't exist. I just assumed it was, but it's something new that they're offering. And if you do subscribe to that sports-centric tier where you get a bunch of sports stuff, then yes, the ESPN Plus streamer with ads will be part of that package when you subscribe to it via Spectrum in 
frankly, uh, it's uh, uh, California. And what's the other big market? Florida? I forget the other big state. But anyway. New York. Um, Oh, New York. Well, when we have it here in Alabama. So that's what's going on with that. But enough of this. I want to get to the silent movies. Well, Michael, that does wrap up Big Deal or Big Whoop for this week and move us along into Inside Baseball, as you just uh, stated. Inside Baseball is where we analyze some of the headlines that have the entertainment industry buzzing. We'll explain what they mean for the business and, more importantly, how they affect you. That's right. Uh, Today, we're talking about Milestone Film and Video. Uh, That was launched by Amy Heller and Dennis Doros in 1990 from their one-bedroom apartment in New York City. I think maybe, from what I'm looking at, that's still where it's based from. I don't know. Um, That would be exciting. Uh, Their motto, Sperling, get ready to to bleep this out. Their motto is, we like to f*** with the canon. They have, for decades now, specialized in rescuing and restoring films outside the mainstream. Movies by women, queer people, Native Americans, people of color. Uh, They have a new film coming out called The Spanish Dancer, which is a 1923 silent film starring the Polish actress Pola Negri as a gypsy Romani fortune teller and Antonio Moreno as her lover. Uh, It's a fascinating movie. It has huge carnival scenes with so many extras in one big section. And uh, it also stars Wallace Beery in a great role as the king and Adolf Menjou. It's directed by Herbert Brennan or Brennan, who should be more known. He's really controlled every aspect of his movies and was a genuine auteur a la D.W. Griffith with silent movies like A Kiss for Cinderella, Peter Pan, Neptune's Daughter, which was shot in my home country of Bermuda, and the original Beaugest. Uh, This movie in particular, The Spanish Dancer, was shot by James Wong Howe, a 10-time Oscar nominee, and of course famous for Sweet Smell of Success, HUD, and so many other movies. And we are joined today by Dennis Doros, the co-founder, while Amy Heller is in the next room getting ready for their appearance at the New York Film Festival with a a new uh, edition of Household Saints, a new restoration or new distribution of that classic film by Nancy Savoca. And I am part of a group. Uh, called the IRAs, which votes on movies every year, a la the New York film critics in LA and all those other people. And we do all the categories. And every other year we do something like the 50s or Westerns. And this year, for the first time, we are tackling silent films. Uh, I know already a number of people have uh, the director Herbert Brennan's Peter Pan on their list. I think Neptune's Daughter is lost, but it's going to be exciting for them to be able to watch The Spanish Dancer for the first time in a long time. So, Dennis, thank you so much for being on the show. Oh, thank you very much for uh, having me here. I should correct, we are no longer on the 28th floor of our (laughs) fancy New York apartment. We are now move 29 floors down below that into the basement of a house in New Jersey. <laughs> uh, we, we have, this is what happens when you deal with silent films. You actually move down in this world. Well, let, let me, uh, that's, that gets to my first question. Before I do that, let me tell people some of the stuff that Milestone Films have done over the years. Some of the movies that they've helped restore and or distribute and get out to the world again, the neglected classics, movies that should be classics and are now recognized as such, include films like really some of my favorite films that I have seen in the last 30 years, Charles Burnett's Killer of Sheep, the queer documentary Word is Out. Like so many of their films, when I saw Word is Out, I thought, how have I not seen this before? It was amazing. Kent McKenzie's The Exiles, about Native Americans in Bunker Hill, LA, circa 1961. Martin Scorsese's passion project I Am Cuba, 
Shirley Jackson's documentary, Portrait of Jason, uh, Billy Woodbury's Bless Their Little Hearts, one of my favorite animated films, The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, and one of my favorite films of all time that I waited decades to see is the gospel documentary, Say Amen, Somebody, which was praised by Siskel and Ebert. And I saw them praise it, wanted to see it, never got a chance. Had to wait 30 years, and it was worth the wait. So, Dennis, you've been devoting your life to all these labors of love. And my first question is, why aren't you broke? (laughs) Well, it's the joke about the folk singer. How does a folk singer make a million dollars? And the uh, answer is you start with $2 million. (laughs) No, it's uh, no. we have been able to survive and make money over the last 30 years. We've been able to pay for the house and our kids' education. So uh, we've been more than successful in our view of what we've done. And uh, we've found ways to make money. A lot of it is through the patronage of Turner Classic Movies. I mean, Charlie Tabish, who I'm sure you've talked about in the last few months, has been the best friend to everybody. And TCM has been too. So How scared were you when they had had all the turmoil there? Well, we were paid consultants to Turner Classic Movies, so we, I'm not sure if we were actually officially listed as uh, among the missing that month. But No, but about um, the turmoil and what was going on there and how much uh, oh, Zaslav no, we and Warner Brothers Yeah, we were fired the month before. <laughs> so um, uh, we were paid consultants to t- TCM. We're no longer, but we have been thrilled and are thrilled still to be working with Turner Classic Movies. So um, it was precarious. It still is in many ways, but as long as Tarly Tabish is in charge, we're uh, thrilled and happy with what they are. Um, he is a fabulous person and an incredible programmer, so we're happy to be associated with him. Now, uh, Michael talked a lot about the Spanish Dancer. What made you choose the Spanish Dancer? Uh, you know, and As a project, how- yeah. As a project, I mean, were the elements suddenly made available, and was it somebody's passion? And it, it, it's, I think it's the hundredth anniversary. Which Michael, you talk about those crowd scenes. That was what what got me. I thought, wait a second, this was like a hundred years ago. Did you, I guess people knew by then what what movies were, <laughs> but still, it was fairly new, and it wasn't CGI. So the crowds are actual crowds. So yeah, yeah. what what made you uh, choose the Spanish dancer? Oh, like everything, there's whims and accidents and happy circumstances. Um, We have been working with the iFilm Museum since 2005, I believe, with Beyond the Rocks, Mm -hmm. the Valentino and Swanson film, and we have become best friends with just about everybody at the archive. We've gone to conferences there. Uh, The Netherlands is one of our favorite countries. We go visit there on vacation. We see our friends there. It may be where you go if uh, the government collapses here. (laughs) That is that I am uh, an expert on Funda.nl, which is the Dutch real estate (laughs) website. So uh, ask me about any town and their estimated values of apartments. I will. I got it down. But our other expertise is silent films, and we've worked with iFilm Museum on Philobus, which we love, Mm -hmm. and a a number of projects. and it has always been on our mind that they had restored this film a few years ago, Rob Bird. Yeah, like 2012. I film museum. Yeah, yeah. It, it's it's been a while, but they did a, they were going back and doing new transfers for their films. Uh, there's been new technologies and new understandings of tinting and how best to record it digitally, and so they are going back on a few things. Uh, and we've been talking about the Spanish dancer for some time, but of course it had been under copyright 
by Paramount for all this time. And uh, it falling into the public domain a couple of years ago has helped. But the real thing was that we have a friend, Bill Ware, who is a African-American composer, a brilliant musician. The jazz Passengers. The Jazz Passengers. He's he's really a fabulous human being. His wife is the manager, Dana Ware, is the manager of the Jazz Passengers. And she and Amy ran on uh, the same ticket in 2016 uh, for Bernie. And so we've been close friends with them. And they did, Bill did a fabulous score for The Adventures of Prince Ahmed. Mm, yes. Um, I love that movie. With the, Yes. And he did a fabulous one that you can hear online, but you can't watch it with a movie per se because our contract with the uh, producers say we can only use the original score. So we really wanted to work with Bill Ware and we wanted to do something special. And so we proposed a few films and then... It, they, none of them really excited him, per se, because they weren't expansive enough, I, would, I should say. Mm-hmm. So I said, there's this big epic film, 1923, The Great Polonegri, Antonio Moreno. It has an incredible cast. And the interesting thing is the Jazz Passengers had done a live score for A Creature from the Black Lagoon. Which, which Tony Moreno was also in. Bizarrely enough. And so that kind of caught his attention, and he saw the film, and he saw the possibilities of doing a really amazing score using Romani music and 17th century Spanish court music. I mean, it, um, if people who don't know, he's worked with Steely Dan and Deborah Harry and the jazz great Joe Henderson and many others, along with his band, The Jazz Passengers. And his score here uses a vibraphone, a midi orchestra, and then like ancient instruments like an oud, if that's how you pronounce it. So it's a fascinating score. It really is. This is why we wanted to work with Bill because he's an incredibly inventive, uh, brilliant composer. Um, we wanted to see what he could do with the silent film because he had already done The Adventures of Prince Ahmed, mm-hmm. and we really loved that. And we thought that his abilities would really suit the Spanish dancer. Now, what happens with a movie like this? Do you strike a new negative, or is this purely digital nowadays, or what happens with that? Do you make a negative just to store it somewhere? The iFilm Museum had restored it on film in 2012, as you mentioned. So the negative was there, and they had done a 2K transfer off the negative uh, using the original tints on the version. They realized about seven, eight years ago with Philobus that if they, re- if they scan the original materials in black and white and then match the colors digitally, it is a closer hmm. version to the original tints than by scanning it tinted. I mean, it doesn't make sense as much, but when you're scanning, the colors are picked up differently by the scanner and then recorded differently. And so if you're going to try to reproduce them faithfully, you do it in black and white and add the tints digitally to make it closer to the original nitrate material. And that's what they were able to do with Spanish Dancer, Philobus. And uh, so this was a brand new scan of the restoration materials. Do um, digital copies make it easier for you to get movies like this out and around the world, or are you still doing negatives? No, we're not. Um, okay. There's two different things. The iFilm Museum had the negative. Yes. They are an archive. They have preserved it. Yes. We don't need to make a new negative of what they've already done. When we restore a film, um, we usually pres- prefer, if we have the money, to preserve it digitally and do an output negative 
for further preservation of the restoration. Uh, so we almost always do that, but in this case, the negative exists. No, my question is whether whether the change in exhibition that it's now digital rather than having to ship negatives all over the world does that make it easier for you to get these movies out and seen? Uh, is it less expensive for you these days? At least that one area. Got it. Yes, uh, a print now costs ten to fifteen thousand um, dollars. Some of our prints probably would cost twenty five thousand dollars now. The and tinted silent films that we've done. So absolutely, it is so much easier. I'm. I have seven, eight hard drives here, about a petabyte in the office itself. And anytime a theater in the world wants to uh, show one of our films, I just have to send them a link. So it is cheaper. It is faster. You don't have to worry about FedEx losing your prints anymore, though wonderful corporation as they may be. It has happened in the past. Uh, so it is so much easier to work in a digital environment. And the restorations... I mean, this is heresy for some, but the restorations look better. I mean, it's just, it's just true. Well, let me ask you this because I, I used to work for a company that did those restorations. Maybe not of every single film, but they restored all of Disney's films, for instance, and the Apollo uh, Moon missions as well. Uh, Lowry Digital, uh, which was at the time that I worked there, was owned by DTS, and I worked at at, at DTS, uh, and they would scan these films in uh, digitally. Uh, and then they would frame by frame go in and they had algorithms that automated a lot of it uh, in what you would re refer to as AI. <laughs> this was 15 years ago. Uh, but And then they would go frame by frame after the AI had its way and kind of look at each frame and kind of fix it. Basically, each frame would be photoshopped to take a piece of dust here, a hair there. Um, is that still how it's being done? Is that what you're doing with it? Yes. Um, it is still being a lot. Some of it is uh, AI. Some of it is manual labor. It really depends. Uh, I Am Cuba had to be entirely cleaned frame by frame by hand because the algorithms didn't work on that Russian material we had, the fine grain. Oh, interesting. So that one had to be done manually. A lot of times uh, through infrared, through every, every lab has their own propriety. Um, software, um, a lot of it still depends on the talents of an archivist going frame by frame. You know, it's funny that you say an archivist because a lot of these people, they were like, you know, there was like a room full of tent. When we, when tours were given, it would be like, look at all those, all these Apple computers working in tandem to generate each frame of film. And then in the back, there'd be 10 10, uh, you know, basically digital artists going frame by frame. And I'm like, well, <laughs> mostly. But at the time, there was also only like maybe five companies doing it. Now, it seems like there are way more companies doing this kind of work. Has that brought the price down? That has, no. <laughs> because it is still manual labor and it is still hundreds of hours of manual labor. Nothing is going to uh, make that cheaper. And we don't want it to. We want to pay the people who do our work properly. Um, what has gone up is the output to 35 millimeter again, because when there were 100 film labs and 15 digital, now there's hundreds of digital labs and maybe three or four film labs in the United States now that can do the work. So that has gone exponentially up in price. Oh. Now, how do the economics work here? I'd love to know what your budget was. That'd be great if you want to share. If not, I, I guess I understand. You don't want the competition to find out. But when you make a decision to make a movie, are you saying, you know what, we did this, 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 I believe we can break even. 
I mean, is that where you pull the trigger or do you, or, you know, and if you make money, that's gravy or cause it's a passion project, everything you do. Uh, I always say that Milestone is a for-profit company in theory. <laughs> and again, we've made money. We've done what we've can. You've been around for 33 we, years. You're doing great. Yeah, we're doing fine. I'm, I'm very happy with what we've done. When we acquire a film, it's about how much we love the film. First of all, if you're going to restore it, and again, we did not restore Spanish Dancer. Right. I Film Museum and Rob Byrne did. You're bringing it back, all to, credit to, them. Bringing it back to the world. Another, another yes. look at it, yeah. But when you're restoring yourself, and I'm doing uh, Eric von Straham's Queen Kelly at the moment, I am on a radical new version three, and I will be seeing it maybe a hundred more times before it's finalized. Uh, you better like the film before you acquire it, because you're going to see it so many times, frame <laughs> by frame, scene by scene, over and over again, that if you don't love it in the first place. So we always assume that we will find a way to express why a film is special, that that is really what our job is to do, is to get the attention of whatever press is left, uh, get the attention of the audience, and explain why this film is special. I mean, The Spanish Dancer has one of the greatest casts and crews. Uh, you mentioned Herbert Brennan. There's also the script writers, June Mathis and Beulah Marie Dix, with the two great legendary female um, screenwriters of the silent era. And women, James women Wong really Howe. dominated in screenwriting and editing back in the silent era, didn't they? For, yes. Yeah. It was June Mathis who made Rudolph, Rudolph Valentino mm -hmm. uh, with the script for Four, Four Horsemen of the Apocalypse. Uh, James Wong Howe is the cinematographer. Howard Greer is an unsung hero of costume designs. He hired everybody who was at Paramount, including Edith Head, mm. uh, and then retired You know, five years later to start his store in Hollywood, which designed clothes for all the Hollywood starlets. The choreographer was Ernest Belcher, who was March Champion's father, and also the uh, teacher for people like March Champion, obviously, but Sid Charisse, I mean, and uh, Gwen Vernon was another one of his. So... The crew was incredible. The cast was Paula Negri, Antonio Moreno, Wallace Berry. Adolf Manjou. Uh, Adolf Manjou. Um, Dawn O'Day for, I hear there's Dawn O'Day uh, fans. Yeah, which so, one is she? She is the one who plays uh, the young, the young uh, prince. Oh, she plays or, the prince? The little boy? Yes. Okay, yes. There you go. Yes. Don Balthasar Carlos. Mm -hmm. So, um, she, she is in it too. So... That's what really attracted to me. And I have to say is I really liked the film. But when I saw Bill's score for the Carnival, <laughs> it's like, wow, this is an incredible film now. And Bill really was able to make it for me. I mean, other people will have other favorite scores, but that made it really special for me that this really brought out the epic qualities. Do you release the, the audio, the audio, the soundtrack, the score on CD or on, on streaming? Is that part of the plan and maybe one way to earn money back? Or I mean, I know sometimes it's odd to hear a, a, a uh, silent film score because it's not necessarily traditional music. You know, I buy those CDs. I don't sell them. Uh, we don't have a milestone paraphernalia store. Uh, we don't sell buttons and things. And we sh maybe should. A24 is fabulous at it. Yeah. I was just mentioning this today. Oscilloscope TCM is also. But uh, no, we are in the film business. We sell films. and 
maybe Bill Whale will release it on his own, or he'll certainly play pieces from it in concert, I'm sure. I, I think it's very possible it's already on Shopify because he has the rights to it. Cool. Outside of the film. You mentioned some of the other people. Um, I would mention, like, I just saw a restoration, I think it's a restoration, of Herman, a 1930 film, uh, restored in part, at least, by the Film Foundation. And there are other people doing the work that you do. Are you all one big happy community? Or are you, like, fighting over, I want to do this movie, I want to, you know, are you just, like, happy to see everybody succeed? Because there's obviously far more projects than could ever be done waiting for people to, you know, restore movies that have already been or give them a new master and find stuff that's never been done. I mean, it's never ending. What I say is we are best friends with everybody, Jeff Messino and Peter Becker Criterion. Uh, we still go back a long ways. We took vacation with Zeitgeist Films last week. So we are really good friends with them. I get jealous over some of their releases. <laughs> I wish I had brought them out. But when I think about the 10 restorations I'm working on right now, I kind of tell myself I can't do everything. And it's Can you list them? Or is, is it a secret? Can you list them? And is one of them the final reel of Magnificent Ambersons? <laughs> well, I haven't. No, nobody's releasing that yet. So, <laughs> well, when uh, you find it, let me know. I'll come yes. over and just glance at it at least. No, I mean, Foolish Wives is a film that I had worked on in 19... 19- 85 and i would have loved to have done the restoration i mean not the restoration the release of it Mm -hmm. i mean that's just off the top of my head criterion obviously and i should mention kina warbro who we work with and our colleagues yeah they um this the nasty women release the african-american uh cinema release i mean there's a lot of things brett wood has done incredible work for Kino Warburg and bringing out some films. And what are the projects you're working on now, if we can tease people to say, look forward to this, if that you can talk about? Yeah, well, I did mention Queen Kelly because I've made it publicly out there that if anybody has footage or stills, I would love to see them. Uh, that one I'm finishing up next week, but then we have to raise the money to restore it. So that's another $150,000, let's wow. say. Uh, we have new versions of a 2K restoration of Chang and a 4K restoration of Grass, both by oh. Marion C. Cooper and Ernest Shedsack and Grass, of course, Marguerite Harrison. I have did mention Household Saints by Nancy Savoca, which we're playing with her first student film, Renata, at the New York Film Festival next month. Uh, Bushman by David Shickley, which is a 1971 uh, hybrid, uh, I don't even know what to call it, that played at Bologna this year and is an enormous hit. It's already playing in 10, 10 countries um, over the last, over the next three months. Um, that's, that's about what I can mention right now. Um, there's some other films, if I told you, you'd say what, and so it's not fair to them. Okay. And when you are releasing these films, are, and working on these films, is it toward a theatrical release or is it more toward a uh, streaming or or home entertainment release is it more for archive well certainly it's all archive where are you making your money now too (laughs) again it's all theoretical um it's it's no actually interesting enough i'll i'll answer the first question uh we're old-fashioned we're 65 we make no bones about it we love theater. We love having it up on a big screen in a movie theater, uh, playing it in, you know, 20, 30, 40, 50 theaters. Um, the world has changed, but the thrill of seeing it with an audience has not. And so we'd like to try to do that. We still do posters for the films. 
We still do trailers. A lot of people don't do that anymore. We like to try to make it appear like every single one of our films is being seen for the first time because an audience hasn't seen them before, uh, mostly. Um, the second question is where we make our money. Uh, Milestone is actually different than most other companies that starting with Killer Sheep in 2008, we mostly acquire films for worldwide rights, uh, that we have international rights for most of our films now. And a lot of our money is coming from film societies around the world. We might only play 20, 30 cities in the United States, but we're playing 50 to 75 cities internationally outside the United States. And is it kind of like a, a, a uh, what do they call it, uh, like a road show where you're going from city to city rather than opening all at once, a big wide opening at 2000 Street? It's like, no, today we're in Paris. Today we're in Cleveland and tomorrow we'll be in Chicago. I, I can promise you that everybody who's showing Batman next week is going to be showing. No, um, no, we're not 2000 cities. We, we do one, two, three theater. We're lucky if we have five uh Theaters playing something the same week. Most of the time, we're opening in New York City. And because, do, you, do you do you have to yeah. pay for the uh, the marketing? And, and and do you do the marketing? And if so, how, uh, how how has that changed? And how do you go about doing that? Well, we are doing it with our partners, Kino Lorber. Uh, the posters have to be paid for. The trailers have to be paid for. Uh, advertising is minimal because how important are the newspapers these days? And right. I don't say that with glee. I say that with an extremely sad heart, but um, the publicity, the press, everything has to be paid for. And it does cost something. And it, we will spend less money on the Spanish dancer than we will with Household Saints, which has a high profile, probably a broader base of uh, attendees. But we do try to spend our money smartly and try to spend it on the films. And definitely we take two or three years before release to work hard at getting people to get excited about our films. But with these film societies around the world, do you find that the silent movies obviously travel really well? I mean, they're made, you can enjoy them very easily all over the world. Well, the other thing is thanks to Kevin Branlow, obviously, thanks to Pardenone, the El Cinemamuto, uh, Bologna, El Cinema Retrovato, uh, silent film festivals have exploded around the world. Uh, there used to be a joke in the New Yorker, uh, the Tenderfly Film uh, International Film Festival, and it was a 16-millimeter projector on a stand with five people in front of it. But <laughs> every city has a film festival now. Now... The number of cities around the world that have silent film festivals has exploded. I mean, there's, I would guess, well over 100. Yeah, and a live score can make it so much fun. This is what makes it exciting, and this is what's made them popular. And, uh, and it's dedicated people around the world who do the work to get these festivals out there. I mean, it takes an incredible amount of work. The, um, and, and, but we, we, uh, I love seeing movies in a theater, obviously, but I realize now more and more how valuable and important it is to get stuff out on physical copies, on Blu-ray, because streaming, you know, we can see so many TV shows and so many movies are not available on streaming. You think they would be, but they're not. They can disappear or they can be yanked off the library to save a couple bucks. There's so much classic movie that I have on Blu-ray, thanks to people like you and Criterion and others, and I have a library of them. Everything you do gets put on Blu-ray. Are you seeing any sort of resurgence or did it never quite go away in terms of that hardcore cineast audience that wants to own a copy? We've been very lucky that 
individuals have supported Milestone by buying the DVDs and Blu-rays. And for the last 30 years, I started off with VHS, by the way, <laughs> that was our first product. And we did Laserdiscs. So we've done just about every format. What um, do you do with old Laserdiscs? Said the guy with, I might have a few, actually. Mm-hmm. I may have a few <laughs> dozen. Okay, so what we did is we had an intern, Austin Renna, who now works at 824, who is a Laserdisc collector. And I said, please go into my garage. There's five I need to keep, but you can have everything else. And we made our intern the happiest person on earth. And that is far worth more than anything is worth. And, you know, making somebody happy and making somebody have something that they treasure. It's worth it. That, That this encompasses your entire career and philosophy of doing things for the love of it. You know, you could have made a buck putting it on eBay, but no, you're like, no, this guy collects them. He values them and you'd rather share them with him than have them just go out anonymously or be dumped somewhere. I mean, it's a well-known secret that anybody who comes here to Milestone, whether they're a student or whatever, gets the Criterion Closet, which in our version is goes to our basement on the other side near the water heater and they can choose whatever they want from our rack of... uh, we actually have literally have a VHS rack from a video store that closed 30 years ago in close to New Jersey. And that's where we keep the DVDs for people to come and pick from. So, so, so uh, the, yeah. the big question, maybe the most important question is, are you hiring? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, no, uh, we stopped hiring full time in 2008. So we could release the films <laughs> we really wanted to. Uh, we have had interns until um, the pandemic and now. Uh, we haven't had anybody in the last few years, so it's, we love interns. We love the energy they bring, and we actually pay them the fifteen dollars an hour. Uh, again, Amy ran for Bernie Sanders, mm-hmm. but right now we don't have anybody. Well, uh, you know, people will uh, maybe you'll get some more offers here. I I don't know what I would grab from your closet because I have so many of your stuff already. Uh, so it's been so great to be able to review them or to buy them over the years so that I could have these movies because you've really created a great library. I look forward to when you restore Napoleon and have a full orchestra on three screens. I've been waiting my whole life to see that. It was about to happen and then it fell apart because of the pandemic. Somebody was about to do it. So um, actually Netflix has that through the cinema tech friend says who's making their own restoration apart from Kevin Brownlow's. So mm-hmm. I expect it to be out. Yeah. But, Wait a second. Uh, are you telling me there are dueling restorations of, of, of Napoleon? That, like, you know, normally it's like, oh, there's dueling volcano movies or dueling earthquake movies or dueling superhero movies. Now we have a dueling restoration battle going on over Napoleon. Well, let, let, me, let me go back to, uh, I have been a member of the Association of Moving Image Archivists since 1997. AMIA. It is, an associ- it is the largest association of moving image archivists in the world, over a thousand people, 20, 30 countries approximately. And it was founded in 1992 to bring archivists, academics, cinephiles, the wor- studios, everybody who loves film together and it has been extraordinarily successful in establishing collaborations between everybody. Good. And since then, there hasn't been warring archives. There hasn't been feuds per se. Everybody goes to the conference and has a few drinks together and 
argues it out in person and leaves as best friends with five other restorations they're doing. However, in this case, <laughs> yes, there is the Kevin Brownlow restoration and there's the Cinematheque Frances restoration. But none of them have been seen in a long time live with the full orchestra and the three screens. So whoever gets it out there, more power to them. Does it just break yes. your heart how much stuff? I mean, we think of silent movies disappearing and how much is lost. There's stuff from the 90s. You know, that gets getting lost. I mean, it's just a never-ending battle. Does it break your heart sometimes how much work there is to preserve or how many things are slipping through the cracks? Well, especially in the 1990s, uh, Amy and I are uh, two of the seven co-founders of Missing Movies, Mm -hmm. which uh, is the seven of us, Mary Heron and Nancy Savoca and everybody else, um, devoted to educating the public about the crisis we're facing with movies disappearing from... The silent era, of course, but uh, there is a rapidly increasing disappearance of films from the 80s, 90s, 2000s, even from two weeks ago because our drives fail. So we are dedicated to educating the public and filmmakers about how to preserve movies. And yes, so we have been disturbed by it and hopefully missing movies will be part of the discussion and helping to solve the problem. Well, where can people see The Spanish Dancer? Of course, they can buy it on Blu-ray and DVD. Come to your website. Tell them that. We'll have links in our show notes. Uh, it will be playing in theaters in a few places around the world. We'll have to figure out that. Uh, it starts September 29th, the theatrical release per se. Um, but mostly, and Kino Now is for streaming. And hopefully, TCM will pick it up one day. And uh, hopefully, it will be out there more frequently in the future. And they can go to your website and buy it there as well, right? I mean, uh, the Milestone Kino? website will lead them to the Kino Lorber site. So, milestonefilms.com. Yeah. Yes. And kinolorber.com also will do it. Well, Dennis, thank you so much for taking the time. I love so many of your projects. They've been really important works for me, and I've loved seeing them all. And uh, it's great. And I can't wait to see what you do in the future. Well, thank you both so much. This has been lovely. And I'm glad to be able to talk to you today. Thanks. Well, that was great of Dennis to stop by. I've, I've covered their stuff for years now. Uh, I really love it. So it was great to fun. As he walked out the door, Dennis corrected me. I made a mistake. I referenced uh, Shirley Jackson, the fine author of the classic short story, The Lottery. Um, I should have said Shirley Clark, the terrific documentary filmmaker who is responsible for Portrait of Jason. So thank you, Dennis, for correcting me on that one. Well, what about uh, a portrait of uh, Gary Wright, the singer? I'm surprised. This was on the evening news. I was shocked. They covered it on the ABC evening news. My mom watches David Muir. She'd like to date him, though. Uh, looking at his private life profile, I think maybe he's more likely to date me. But anyway, um, uh, this was on ABC evening news. I couldn't believe it. Singer Gary Wright of Dreamweaver, Dreamweaver fame has died at the age of 80. He seems like a one-hit wonder, perhaps because he had one hit in his career. The gauzy 1970s power ballad, Dreamweaver. Yeah, now maybe you know what I'm talking about. The song was a hit in the mid-70s, so I might say, well, maybe you know it from the hit film Wayne's World, right? Where he popped in to sing that song again, but I just realized that movie came out 30 years ago, so Wayne's World is ancient history for any kids listening to the show. Oh my God, we're Hold on, old. can you speed this up? I've got I've to make a phone call to buy a wheelchair. Oh, <laughs> just realize you're making a joke. <laughs> yes, all right. Well, Wright did a lot more than one fluke puppet. He was on Broadway as a child actor. His group, Spooky Tooth, never made it big, but other musicians loved them. Everyone from Three Dog Night to Judas Priest 
covered their songs, and the musicians became in-demand session players, with Wright himself playing for Harry Nielsen, B.B. King, and many others. He went solo when the band floundered, and the bassist on his debut album was Klaus Voormann. And anybody who knows their Beatles lore knows Klaus Vorman played with the Beatles. So when George Harrison was recording his solo debut, All Things Must Pass, and producer Phil Spector wanted more, because he always wants more, as in more musicians this time, Vorman recommended Gary Wright. Wright and Harrison bonded over their interest in Eastern religions. They became lifelong friends. Gary Wright played on every George Harrison album for the rest of their lives, as well as a few singles by Ringo. They traveled to India together. And in fact, Harrison even backed Wright on TV when he performed on the Dick Cavett show. That's a pull. Uh, He continues to be covered and sampled by artists all over, like Shaka Khan to Jay-Z. So that was interesting. I'm still surprised that ABC News covered it. But if you're in the literary world, this is big news. Translator Edith Grossman has died at 87. She translated novels into English like many before and since. But she was so good at her calling and so insistent that translators be given their due that she elevated the role of translator from anonymous factotum to esteemed artist. She translated Don Quixote by Cervantes into English and insisted her name appear on the cover along with the author. It was widely acclaimed and turned Grossman into a superstar translator, allowing others like Russian specialist Pavirin Provansky and biblical scholar Stephen Mitchell to gain a following just for being translators. Just as some people will listen to any audiobook by certain readers they love, many a literature fan will gobble up any new work by their favorite translator. And Edith Grossman is important and helped make that change possible. Nowadays, you almost always see the name of the translator on the cover because they're so important. She specialized in Spanish, and uh, her work on Gabriel Garcia Marquez's Love in the Time of Cholera was especially notable. They became lifelong friends, and when Grossman committed to that massive two-year task of Don Quixote, Marquez called her up and said, I hear you're two-timing me with Cervantes. (laughs) (laughs) Not a lot of times you can get a lot of translation jokes. We're working in Cervantes, but a fascinating career, very important for literature and for the art of translation. Uh, So sorry to see her go. And I'm sorry to see you go, but the show's over. Yeah. I mean, there's a, who is the Proust uh, translator? Oh, uh, oh, yes. Yes. Montcrief was one of the the first. Yeah. Or one of the more notable ones. Yes. And then there's Enright now, if I'm not mistaken. Well, yeah. Then there's one who built on their work and then, Weirdly, somebody did a project where different translators tackled each book, which literally makes no sense, though I guess people don't have 10 years of their lives to devote to the project. But I hated that idea because like, once you get used to one translator, you don't want another one for the next book. So that was, I never even read that one. That's the one that Lydia Davis did Swan's Way for. Okay. The fact that I know all of this is just... Impressive. Yeah, it's the, uh, the modern library version, by the way, mm-hmm. for those of you. Of course, most people just claim to have read Marcel Proust, never actually having read his one, well, he's written more than one book, but it's the the big... uh, In Search of Lost Time, it's great. Yes. Well worth it. Very funny, very chatty, very gossipy. It's not what you think. Yes. Uh, But you know what? That's kind of like us. It's not what you think. (laughs) That's right. We're funny, we're chatty, we're gossipy. (laughs) Yeah. And in theory, we're also profitable. Um, Oh, yes. In theory. (laughs) In theory. that's, That's the problem. Uh, You know what? You can subscribe to us, though, in iTunes, Google Podcasts, Microsoft Marketplace, Spotify, maybe even Deezer. I don't know if they have podcasts or not, but anywhere they give podcasts away for free, you can usually find us and please, in any one of those aggregators that allows you to do so, please rate and review the show. It helps us out when you do that. 
You can find that information on our website, showbizsandbox.com, which is where you'll find links to all of the stories we've discussed on today's episode. That's also where you'll find those ways to contact us. Our email address is dirt at showbizsandbox.com, D-I-R-T at showbizsandbox.com. You can also call and leave us a voicemail. The number to call is 888-567-SAND. That's 888-567-7263. We're also on Twitter, where our handle is at Showbiz Sandbox, although I guess I have to start calling it X now. Uh, we're on Facebook, uh, facebook.com slash Showbiz Sandbox, where you can like our page. The music that you hear at the beginning and end of each show is by the popular indie rock group MGMT. They can be found on their own website. Who is MGMT.com? Michael Giltz has a website, and every week it's something new and exciting. What is it this week, Michael? Tilting at windmills.com. See Don Quixote for that reference. That's right. Um, I was going to choose dreamweaver.com, but when I go there, I figured it was taken. It's not taken as such. It just says you can't go to that website. What's up with that? I have no idea. Yeah. Well, if you know, know, tell us. <laughs> yeah, write to us. Uh, you know what? And if you can't find any of uh, Michael's coverage of the entertainment industry on something about windmills, the tilting thing that you just said, tilting at windmills, which is, a, of course, a Cervantes reference, why not head on over to michaelgiltz.com where all of his work is aggregated? Some of my work can be found on celluloidjunkie.com. Until next week, play nice. <laughs>